reason I love story is it's such a picture of life. You know, there, there are basically four roles in a story. There is the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. The story is really about the hero. The more time you spend in victim mode and villain mode, the worse your life is gonna go. Did you ever have to give up trying to change victims? And if yes, what was your formula? Not only do we have to try to give up changing victims, we have to give it up every day. You can make miracles happen sometimes. A person's gotta wanna change. One of the hardest things for us to do as small business owners is get people's attention and keep it. There is a system to the madness. The second we play the hero in the story, we remove ourselves from our customer's story. That, that's so powerful what you just said. Can you say that one yeah. more time? That was so powerful. That you always wanna be creative. How else could we make money? How else could we grow this company? If you can write, you are deadly. Biden as well as uh, Trump. Which of those two campaigns are you seeing doing a better job telling their story and getting their message out there to the audience? He naturally thinks villains, fear, climactic scene of making America great again. That, that's the stuff you would use to write a screenplay. You care about the voter. Biden does a very, very good job with that. What tip would you give both to the independent party as well as the libertarian party? We're giving tax credits to invest in Chinese companies, the profits of which build Chinese tanks. Democrats and Republicans both have been bought by those lobbyists. That is wrong. It's time for a real change. My guest today is Don Miller, who's an expert at telling stories, but he's also written a New York Times bestselling book back in 2003 called Blue Like Jazz. And today he's the CEO of StoryBrand. You've read his book. Many of you have probably read his book before. You've heard about him before. Uh, if you're in the business world and you want to get better in marketing and branding, that's his expertise to the point when even uh, he helped on a task force with Barack Obama in one of his elections and uh, one of his campaigns that he was doing. So with that being said, Don Miller, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. I'm glad to be here. So, Don, let's get right into it. Our audience, they're business people, they're, entre they're entrepreneurs, they're sales folks. These are people that want to figure out a way how to take their business to the next level before we get into how somebody can tell their story better or brand themselves better or market themselves better. I'd like to kind of start off with you, how you went about, you know, going with your background to all of a sudden becoming an author and then all of a sudden you're talking to CEOs, executives about how to tell their stories better. Yeah, it's definitely not a clear, a clear straight path to be able to do that. It's a series of happy accidents. But I, uh, I wrote books for years, about, spent about 10 years writing memoirs. Those were really successful. And a gentleman with the company Accenture called me and said, hey, you're kind of an expert at storytelling. Do you think you could help us figure out a project management formula to get to unite a team and accomplish something. And I went in and did a little bit with Accenture to do that. And then when I, I took that formula, I thought, you know, it's a great project management formula, but it really works better in clarifying a message so that your marketing works better. And so I adapted it for that purpose. We tested it with uh, 20 or 30 businesses. They all grew very quickly. Uh, I turned it into a book. The book sold half a million copies. And now we help about 5,000 or so businesses a year figure out their message. So, you know, I, I was a memoirist. I never expected to, to be a business person, uh, but, but it's been a, a wonderful transition. You know, Patrick, I wrote about seven or eight memoirs. The publisher wanted more, but nothing else had happened in my life. I mean, I went camping and I couldn't get a book out of that. So I, to pivot to the business world has actually been a delightful surprise and it's, it's been fun. So what is your formula in helping businesses, CEOs, entrepreneurs come up with their stories? 
Well, before I get into the formula, I will say for me, as I look at businesses, you know, there are traditionally three P's that you have to get right. You have to get your product right. And when your product is, is wanted in the market and profitable, you've got to start hiring people. And who, who knew we needed a counseling degree to run a business, but it, it's definitely beneficial. You got to get your people straight. And then if you want to scale, you have to get your processes straight. And a lot of people, they neglect the fourth P and the fourth P is positioning. How are we positioning ourselves in the market? What words are we using to stick in people's minds and differentiate ourselves from the competition? The beautiful thing about positioning is it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's almost free. It's literally just words. You've got to sit down and do some really hard work on a napkin and figure out how you're going to talk about your product or service. Businesses that figure out that fourth P, that position themselves in the market, tend to skyrocket. The truth is people don't actually buy the best products and services. They buy the ones that they can understand the fastest. If, you, if somebody can hear about your product in only a few words and, and connect the idea that it will help them solve a problem, you are much more likely to buy Perfect. that product. So w- when I developed this formula, and the formula is based on ancient story structure, when I developed the formula for clarifying your message, the purpose of that formula was to, to leave uh, with a messaging system that would position you in the marketplace that would be a competitive advantage. Excellent. And, uh, so and so that's, that's why I developed the formula in the first place. I love it. So before we get into the positioning, how about we stay on these four pieces here real quick for a second? Product people, process, positioning. So most people, you know, I think you would agree that, uh, uh, say they have a great product and just because they have a great product, they think they're gonna make it to the top and you and I both know product alone won't do it. You need to have a real marketing plan behind it. So let's talk about people because I, I, you said counselor. Uh, when you're talking about people, unpack what that means to you. Is it recruiting? Is it developing people? Is it the culture? Is it how to lift them up? Is it how to get them to work together? What does people mean to you? All of the above. Uh, it, really for a small business owner, they've got to figure out who they're going to hire next. And for me, that order was a virtual assistant who could duplicate my time and then somebody who could help me run the company. I tend to be creative. I'm a visionary. I'm a content creator and I'm a strategist. I'm not a details person. I'm not going to go and figure out a contract with whoever. I need other people to do that. So for me, after I had a virtual assistant, I had to do a pretty good analysis of what my liabilities are, not what my strengths are what my liabilities are. And then I needed, to, I needed to be honest about that and admit I'm not a details person uh, and I've got, to figure out, I've got to find somebody to help me figure out the administrative part. I'm not, I do not want to spend a week researching best healthcare plans for my team. I want somebody to come and present to me a few plans and then I approve one of them. So I, you, you have to hire your weaknesses uh, and staff those out. So everybody's hiring tree or hiring plan should actually be a little bit different. And then the, the people who I want to hire have some common characteristics, Patrick, and I think you'll appreciate them. There are about 10 of them, but I'll give you the top three. The first is I want to hire human beings who actually see themselves as an economic product on the open market. And what I mean by that is they see themselves as an investment and they give people a return on that investment. So if I'm going to pay you $50,000 a year, I want somebody who says, if you're going to pay me $50,000 a year, I want to make you 500. And likewise, if I make you 
$100,000, you know, a million dollars a year, I would like to be paid 100,000. So there's this constant negotiation back and forth where we're having an honest assessment of what you're bringing into the company and what your economic value is. Now, God sees you as priceless. I see you as priceless. Your spouse sees you as priceless. Your kid sees you as priceless. But the business world sees you as an economic investment. And so I want people who really understand that. They don't want to just be paid to sit behind a desk or to show up from nine to five and part their hair and, have, and, and not have bad breath, right? I want somebody who says, I'm a stock. And when you invest in me, I'm going to give you a giant return, which is exactly how you and I have to see ourselves as the CEO of the company. If a, if a customer invests in me, they're investing in me to get a ton of money back. And that's the only way my business can grow. And, you know, Andrew Grove, former CEO over at Intel, you know, he said, everybody is their own company and you're constantly competing with everybody else. And so I like people who see themselves that way. The, the second characteristic I like is somebody who will, who really, it's very hard for them to, to position themselves as a victim. They don't go to victim mode very easily. They stay with that hero energy and love attacking obstacles and overcoming challenges. So when I hear victims speak, uh, I, tend, I tend to think those people aren't going to fit on my staff. And then the third, you'll also appreciate, Patrick, I, I like a team member who de-escalates drama. Drama, I think, saps everybody's energy. Uh, it's no fun to deal with drama. I love it when there's a dramatic situation and somebody can come in and, and de-escalate that drama so it's smooth sailing. If I hire people with those three characteristics, I can teach them almost anything and they're going to be successful at my company. So, you know, we all have a different hiring tree, but there are a core set of characteristics I look for. And those are, those are three of them uh, right there. Don, for the greedy folks that are watching this, what are the other seven? <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I've got a book coming out called Business Made Simple. It comes out in January, and it starts with the 10 characteristics of what, we, what I call a value-driven uh, professional. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, they, they know how to do things like block their time. They know how to establish priorities. They know how to manage people. They know how to run an execution system. Uh, we, could, we could get into the woods on that. I've got, I've got 240 pages on it that comes out in January, so I'll send you a copy. Perfect. So, so here's the one question about what you're saying here is this is great. Human beings that see value for themselves, you know, uh, uh, in the economic, you said uh, 50,000, 500,000, 100,000, 1 million. Is that your formula? 10 X what I pay you? Is it that kind of, okay, perfect. That's it good is. to know. If somebody, if somebody pays me $3,000 to attend one of my workshops, uh, I want to get them $30,000 uh, in return. In fact, I, I have, I don't do this very often, but but if you want to sit with me for a day and have me look over your marketing strategy and change it and change some of the words that you're using, I will only do that for $50,000. And I'll only do it if you can chart and measure a $500,000 return. And if you do not get a $500,000 return off the day that we spent together, I give you your $50,000 back. Uh, it, to me, it's un I do, and I do that because I do not want the reputation of not being able to get somebody a return on their investment. I never want anybody to be able to say that about me. And because of that, I, I just have had no trouble growing my company. It, when, we when we obsess about giving somebody a giant return on their investment, you have job security for the rest of your life. No question. I, I, I fully agree with you there. Now, here's the other part. You have your 10 points here. The top three you gave, you know, what it was, value bring to the marketplace, hero, not victim, uh, uh, team members who know how de -escalate to- De-escalate uh, drama. De-escalate drama, yeah. So is there a questionnaire that a person takes in their first interview with your company? Is there a questionnaire that they go through? 
There is, yeah. There, there's a series of interviews that they go through. You know, but the other reality is we let them know these characteristics before they come on. It's in the handbook. And so they aren't just characteristics that we hope you have. They're characteristics that we hope you will develop. So, you know, nobody is perfect, but we can Got all it. develop these characteristics. We can all, you know, and it's amazing. Once somebody sees themselves as an economic product on the open market and become obsessed with giving people a return on their investment, everything for them changes. Their, their salary starts going up. They look at the company and their opportunities in the company differently. They try to find ways for the company to go make money that didn't exist before. It's just a massive transformation when they have that, uh, when they have that paradigm shift about themselves. So Don, why don't we go through the process of hiring? So you have a recruiting firm, staffing company you work with, maybe your HR lady or who, the gentleman that's working HR, whoever it is that's running, VP of operations. I'm looking for three employees. We need somebody that's doing X, Y, Z. What's the next step? Take us from there. Well, we've used all of those. We've used headhunters. We've used recruiting outfits. We've just put out on social media, you know, depending on the position and how hard it is, it would be to find that person. Uh, from there, we actually uh, ask for a video interview. We give them a series of questions. They send us a video. That's the first thing that we look at because you can just tell a lot by somebody's confidence when they're looking in the yep. camera. Uh, and then we, we put them through a series of, of questions that, that ask, you know, what would you do in this situation if this came up? And we're looking for creativity. Uh, we're looking for follow through. We're looking for excellence. You know, it, it, Patrick, you know, as well as I do, if you hire the wrong person, it's going to cost you an enormous amount of, of opportunity cost. You know, it's, it's one thing. And, and, and the other thing is we, we hire slow and we fire quick. So within three or four months, if we've made a bad decision, we let that person know, hey, we don't think you're a fit for this organization. We, we, we think you're great. You're going to do well somewhere else. We misjudged it. And I think we're about 70-30. We get it right about 70% of the time. The reality is you just can't know until somebody gets into the seat. And the other thing that we'll do, Patrick, is, is we're very gracious in, in one sense. If you're not working out in this position, we will actually try to find some other way in the company for you to make us money. And that's a challenge on the leadership to say, you know, this person isn't good at this, but let's ask ourselves, is there something we can do with this person, some sort of job description that we, would, we could give them that would allow them to make the company money and be a great investment? And you know, a quarter of the time or more, we actually find an opportunity for them. But that's a paradigm shift that leaders need to, need to understand that you always want to be creative. How else could we make money? How else could we grow this company? And is, would this person, does this person have an opportunity to do something here that would be really amazing? You know, we, we discovered with one of our guys that they were an academic. They were just very, they were, they were just very good at interacting with universities. So we created a whole program for them just to get our curriculum taught inside the university system. And that has been lucrative for us. That position didn't exist as a, as a business strategy. It came to us because we were looking at the skill set of one of our team members. That makes sense. So going back to step number one is video interview. They send it to you. Number two is series of questions. Are there a lot of open-ended questions or the multiple choice? Is it, I have to write a few sentences to explain how I would handle a situation? What is it yeah. like? It's all written test because if we want them to write paragraphs. Uh, and and the, the reason for that is we're looking for the rare individual who can write. If, if you can, <laughs> these days, Patrick, if you know, you know this, if you can write, you are deadly. And what's amazing is we're all texting all the time on our cell phones. We write now more than we've ever written before. We're sending emails, but so few people can actually do it. 
Well, we're a company that is known for communicating very clearly. Can you imagine if we send an email that is not clear, uh, that's confusing? Uh, it, you know, we can't have that happen. So that is another thing I didn't bring up. You have to pass the writing test or you can't work here. So that's a must. That's not even, no matter how much you like them, if I can't pass the writing test, it's a no-go. No, no not at all. Yeah. How long know, is the writing test? We're, we're like a we're like a band. If you can't sing or play an instrument, you can't be in the band. That makes sense. <laughs> At least you know you know what you can't fail. And so, how how long is the writing test? Oh, it's not very long. You know, in a couple pages, whether or not somebody can okay. can Got be it. concise. Yeah, Got we will. Okay. We will also ask them to do their job. So we just hired a podcast uh, producer out of Chicago, and we actually sent them hours and hours of interviews with me interviewing people. And just said, hey, take this and turn this into a podcast episode that you think is entertaining. And they actually had to turn in a finished product before we hired them. So that's a form of a test. You know, if you don't know if they can do it, here's a test for you. See how you do it. And then we'll come back. And if you surprise us, you're in. If you don't, this may not be for you. That's right. And okay. we're looking for rock stars. We're looking for, we're just looking for absolute rock stars. And, and that's a, a, a saying that goes around my company, rock stars only. I mean, absolute, the best that we can possibly get. Uh, Don, how many total employees do you guys have? Uh, we have 24. We just hired four, and we'll, we'll probably hire 10 within the next 12 months. Got it. Okay. All right. So, so far we have product. Then we have people. Then we have process. Is there a formula you have for, uh, uh, you know, we hired a, a consulting firm that came in here. They spent... Uh, six months with us, they went to every single department and came up with every single step on what they do to submit a policy. You first do this, then you do that, then you do this, then you do that. We have 17,000 insurance agents nationwide. So all of the softwares they wanted to put steps in because we didn't have it before. So every yeah. time we hired somebody new, we had to spend three months training them instead of just having watch this video, here's a folder, go through the steps. What is your formula for creating processes that are effective and how do you go about finding leaks and processes that need to be maybe taken out or added? Well, you know, we went through that this year. This was the first year that we actually did what you did and we started creating processes. I will say the reason that's important for so many people listening to this podcast or watching this video is because you can't scale a company unless you have processes because you're gonna to be too dependent on the specific talents and skills of people. Uh, you have to create every position in the company so that they can be replaced and the other person can step in very quickly. So that's why, you know, you went through the experience that you went through and we've gone through the experience that we've gone through. I personally am not a process person. And so I needed to hire somebody to handle execution. So I hired a president. We, he came over from Cox Communications uh, between you and me and everybody listening. He was extremely expensive <laughs> and uh, he came over uh for a pay cut of what, what he was getting before because he really saw the potential in this company. But having somebody uh, on your team who is only in charge of execution, that's it. His only job, his name is Doug, his only job is to make sure everybody else is doing their job. And so, uh, you know, our processes are, are, each department had to come up with their own processes. And then we have a, a, a team stand-up meeting uh, at the beginning of every week. Uh, and then the directors meet every single day uh, for 15, 20 minutes. And then there's a speed, what we call a speed check where the department head is meeting with every single member of their team every week. 
And in those three meetings, we aren't just saying, hey, how's it going and who needs help? There are specific worksheets that we have filled out. Those worksheets say, here are the five priorities for my department, and here are my five priorities uh, within that department in order to get these objectives done. And then there's a series of questions. Do, are, what did you get done last week? What is holding you back? Uh, there's just two or three questions that we ask in every speed check. The routine of those meetings has made us incredibly productive. Uh, we've probably, during the COVID quarantine year, this year, we've probably doubled in productivity what we're producing since we implemented the, that execution uh, framework. Well, one good for you and one good for Doug for leaving Cox and following you and being part of your organization. Uh, he's a godsend. I, he, yeah. He's the highest paid person on my team because he makes sure everybody else get th gets things done. I mean, you talk about a return on an investment. If you hire a per, an execution specialist, uh, that's a very good investment for you uh, at a certain point in your company. No question about that. So let's go back to people. One question I have uh, for you about people is uh, uh, victims. So, yeah. you know, you like the hero mentality. You don't like the victim mentality. From your experience over the years, what are some qualities of someone that may be a victim? Well, uh, uh, the true definition of a victim is somebody who has no option. There's no way to get out. So what that means is there are very few actual victims. Most of us, we play the victim. We play the role of the victim uh, in order to, to skirt our responsibility uh, or to bring some attention or resources to ourselves. It's a default mode. You know, I studied stories for years to write all these books and wrote a screenplay and I really became a story fanatic. And I, the reason I love story is it's such a picture of life. You know, there, there are basically four roles in a story. There is the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. Those four roles exist in almost every story. The victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. And the reason those four roles- Did you say guide or guy? Guide, G-U-I-D-E, guide. guide. Guys. So those four roles exist in story because I think those four roles exist inside of every human being. In fact, on a given day, I will play the victim, the villain, the hero, and the guide. If you look at what happens in a story, uh, the victim uh, does not transform. They do not save the day. They do not help anybody. What they do, the purpose of the victim in the story is to make the hero look good and the villain look bad. At the end of the story, the victim is rescued. You put a blanket around them. You put them in the ambulance. They go off to the hospital, and the hero stays behind to get their reward. The story is really about the hero. Uh, the villain, almost the villain and the hero, almost always have a great deal in common. They both have a backstory of pain. You will normally see the villain with some sort of scar on their face, or a limp, or something that says they've been hurt in the past. The hero has also been hurt. They had a challenging backstory as well. The difference is they responded differently to that pain and suffering. Wow. The, hero, the hero said, I am not going to let this happen to anybody else. I'm going to take the villain down. The villain says, I'm going to seek vengeance against the person who hurt me. I got hurt. I'm going to hurt other people now too. So you can see when, we, when vengeance rises up in us and we want to take vengeance against our oppressors rather than bring them to justice, which is different. We, we play the villain. Well, what happens to the villain in the story? The villain is hauled off to jail or killed, or the story doesn't resolve. 
And then you have the hero. The hero is having to deal with the situation and they're dealing with it, quote, heroically. They are rising up against that challenge. They're not saying this is unfair. They're just saying this is life. We got to deal with it. Let's go help somebody out. Let's go rescue somebody. Uh, and then there's the guide. And the guide is typically the wise sage who is helping the hero win. And the guide has a heroic story in their backstory. And now they're helping other people experience a win. So what does a victim look like? A victim looks like, well, it's not my fault. Uh, it's somebody else's fault. There was nothing I could do. Uh, they typically feel sorry for themselves. They, they find a way to suck energy into themselves. Hero takes the exact same situation and said, well, this just got harder. That's going to make the story a lot better when we conquer this thing, <laughs> right? The, the villain says, you made my life hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you back. In fact, I'm gonna, I may even make innocent people suffer uh, because I experience pain, so I'm going to make other people experience pain. And the guide sees the hero and says, hey, look, I've been through this before. I can help you uh, defeat this villain. Those four roles, you know, I'm telling you, Patrick, I play them every day. But the reality is the more time I spend, it's like a gear shift on a car. You've got the, the victim gear, the villain gear, the hero gear, the guide gear. The more time you spend in victim mode and villain mode, the worse your life is going to go, period. And so we have to, from hour to hour, ask ourselves, wait, am I, am I, am I embracing this like a hero or am I embracing this like a, a victim? For instance, you know, we had about three weeks here at the house. I live in a really unique place. My wife and I built sort of a retreat center. We have over 200 overnight guests a year. Uh, it's a wonderful environment. Uh, I had 30 family members over for Labor Day. The next day, a film crew took over our house for three days, and we filmed six hours worth of business content that we're going to deliver. We did not have a single day off. The next day, a different film crew came in for a live stream marketing workshop. And, you know, before that live stream marketing workshop, I said, I, I'm done. Let's just sell the company and buy a boat. <laughs> <laughs> that was, and my wife looked at me and she said, and you're the one teaches people not to play the victim. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, what does the hero do, right? The hero goes, I'm going to drink a cup of coffee, my friend, and we're going to get this thing done. You know, and of course, uh, uh, that's what we did. I was not going to sell the company and buy a boat. Uh, but you just kind of have to check your spirit sometimes. And the reality is people love being around heroes. They love being about, around guides. Victims, they love to rescue. But honestly, if somebody's a false victim, they drain the energy out of your yeah. whole team. Because yeah. the energy that could be used serving customers is now used dealing with helping somebody else who's you know, who really could probably do the work themselves, but they're, they're playing the victim in order to sap resources into themselves. So those four roles, you know, when we play them in life, our stories in the same way every movie ends. The hero gets a reward. The guide is respected and loved. The, vic the villain goes to jail and the victim is hauled off to the hospital. And let me let me ask you this. I mean, let me ask you. Uh, by the way, the way you put it eloquently, everybody relates to it. We've all uh, relate to what you're yeah. saying right now. But I, but I think the part that, uh, uh, and, and maybe I'm going to give it to you from this angle. And I'm, I'm curious to know what you'll say to this. You know, I'm 20. I don't know how old. I'm 27 years old. And then I said, I'm not married to anybody. I'm done. Uh, I'm good. 28 years old. I'm making money. I'm doing great. I'm fine. You know, I'm I'm a vice chairman of a company. Lifestyle is good. Savings is good. You know, 
Then all of a sudden I'm sitting there asking, talking to a girl named Sandra, who was my assistant, her and her husband were very good friends of mine. I said, uh, Patty, I'm done. I don't need to get married anymore. She said, what do you mean? I said, look, I enjoy my own company. I'm good. I don't need to get married relationship. It's just a mess. And then she makes some uh, book recommendation and I read the book, 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged by Norman Wright. But there was a trend that I looked at the relationships I had, which was, was I playing the player, okay, that was early 20s or was the relationship the father, the, oh my gosh, I'm going to change. You had problems with your dad. I'm going to, you know what, what I'm talking about with the roles of, uh, I'm not going to be the boyfriend. I'm going to be the father role. I'm here for you. You know, I'm going to do this. What is it with some leaders that constantly feel they can change victims? Meaning you've worked with somebody who is extremely, t- you know who I'm talking to. You probably thought, thought about five names. You have somebody in your company, somebody in your organization who you know you see greatness in this person. This person could be a hero. This person could go out there and do incredible things, but behind closed doors, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's the company's fault. It's the industry's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my friend's fault. Everybody's fault except theirs, and they may be the most talented person in your company. Did you ever have to give up trying to change victims? And if yes, what was your formula? Yes, and uh, not only do we have to try to give up changing victims, we have to give it up every day. Uh, what I give somebody who's playing a victim, first of all, it's, it's spoken in our culture. We define victim mentality. It's not a mystery. So people now recognize it in, in themselves. They know that that's not going to be valued here. And so that took care of 80% of the problem right there because you had the, the people who used that tactic, the victim Flop, I call it flopping, you know, like a, a Premier League soccer player. They flop and act like they're injured and then they jump up and score a goal. There's, you know, they're fine. There's nothing wrong. So th- that no longer uh, works in my company. And then what I tend to do is have to remind myself, this happened a couple of days ago. Just, hey, you know, the person's going to play a victim. There's nothing we can do. It is not our job to change them. What I want to do, though, is give them an opportunity to play the hero. So I want to sit down and say, let me explain to you your very clear opportunity to make a lot more money, uh, to, to have all these things come your way, to have a great career. Here's your opportunity if you can do these things. And I have actually seen transformation with some where they look at that and they say, well, all, all I needed to know were the rules of the game and you just taught me the rules of the game. So now I'm gonna play the game and gain some confidence that I can actually win at this game. And so I've seen that happen. But it is not, it's just not our responsibility to do that. And I would, I would actually say a lot of us, we just like you discovered in your dating relationships, Patrick, I didn't get married till I was 42 years old. I had some pretty rocky relationships in there. A couple of them were because somebody played the victim and it made me feel really good about myself yeah. to go in and rescue them. But there's a, a, a psychologist named Kaufman who has something called Kaufman's Triangle. And he says, when you rescue somebody, you begin to resent them and build up tension because they're sapping, they're sapping all of your energy and they won't take responsibility for their lives. So that thing where we, it makes us feel good actually comes back and bites us at the end. Uh, what we want are a team of high-performing, heroic individuals and guides who will, uh, who will transform the lives of our customers by solving their problems. Uh, everything else, we need to go see a counselor and say, why am I trying to rescue people? You know, th- can I tell you a weird story, Patrick? Please, actually, please. I actually went and saw 
I went and saw a counselor once and it was at the uh, request of a friend who has a therapeutic retreat center. He said, you should spend some time figuring this stuff out. And I only went in dealing with my business stuff. I'd already gone and dealt with all my relational stuff, codependency, all that stuff. It's an important journey. And she said, tell me something you want to work on. And I said, okay, well, I've got a couple staff members who I really love. They're like little brothers to me. And I really want to pay them a lot of money. And I dream about their future and all this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm tempted to think maybe I want to overpay them sometimes or, or be a rescue or something like that. And I can't figure out why. And she said, okay. She said, how old is the, one of these guys? She named him. I said, he's about 26 years old. She said, tell me where you were when you were 26. And I said, when I was 26, I was the president of a small publishing company. I had transformed this company. We became the fastest growing publishing company in our segment. And I was so proud of the work I'd done. She said, Don, how did your boss feel about that? I said, he didn't feel any way about it. He was an absentee owner. He wasn't paying attention. In fact, he hired a consultant to figure out why we were growing. The consultant had to tell him it's because of this kid, this guy, Don. And she said, so let me get this straight. When you were 26, your boss did not affirm you or compensate you fairly. And I said, yes. And she goes, isn't it obvious what you're doing? And I said, no, it's not obvious. She said, Don, you're trying to compensate your 26-year-old Yourself, yeah, wow. She had me do this, Patrick. This was really trippy. It was weird. She said, okay, I'm going to put him in this chair. She goes, I want you now to go sit in his chair and be him and look back at yourself and say, here's what I actually need. And I went and I did it and I looked at myself in that empty chair and I said, oh my gosh, it's so clear. I need a clear job description. I need clear objectives and I need to be compensated based on performance. It was just a fascinating revelation. You know, so the reality is we're bringing all sorts of our garbage and our baggage into our work every day. And thank goodness I have a gracious staff who forgives me of that and knows I'm willing to work on it. Uh, but we've got to constantly we be working on those temptations to, to rescue people. You know, you, you don't want to be doing that stuff. I interviewed, um, he actually reminds me of you in our short time together, Patrick. I interviewed Pete Carroll, who's the uh, head of the Seattle Seahawks. I think they're going to win a Super Bowl this year. Uh, they're amazing. I interviewed him a few years ago and I said, how many times do you give somebody a second chance? You know, he said, well, he said, look, if somebody's drowning out there, I'll throw them a rope. And I said, what if they don't take it? He said, I'll throw them another. I said, Pete, what if they don't take it? He said, I'll throw them another. And I thought he was going to go on forever. And I said, okay, what about the fourth time? He said, I let them drown. There you go. And I said, really? You let them yeah. drown? He goes, Don, they chose to drown. It's not my responsibility. That's right. And, uh, that, you know, that's a hard thing to, for those of us who are compassionate and love people, it's a hard thing to actually say, this person is going to have to, you know, drown or near drown in order to figure out their life. And I'm not going to get in the way of that by continuing trying to rescue them. Yeah, I mean, by the way, there's a lot in what you just said. Pete Carroll, he's the man, he, he's the only guy in college uh, who won six seasons in a row of 12 uh, uh, season wins, which is pretty tough to do. And you said something earlier about, uh, uh, you know, the responsibility of trying to change this victim. I have an affirmation that I've been reading for the last 15 years and it changed my life. It says, stop trying to be God. That job is already taken. Very simple. <laughs> stop trying to be so, jo uh, God. That I'm job is already that taken. From you. you know, Patrick, can I steal that from you? I'll it's all yours. Go all for morning. it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so what I did is I'm an unorganized guy. If you see my desk, it is Sam. Is my desk ever organized? You can be honest. Say it so he can hear you. My, my desk is always a mess, okay? Yeah. But I hire, I'm the guy that likes to hire April babies and I like uh, July babies. I like organized people is what I like. I know it kind of sounds yeah. weird to your faith-based no, guy. My, wife, I am is, my wife is into that. Yeah, so I have 
manuals that I created with everything is systems on what we do, right? So I brought everybody together. I think this one's going to be trippy on what we just talked about. This manual I put together 11 years ago on page 168. I didn't even think we we're going to go there. The main page here at the top, if you see it, it says qualities of victimhood mentality. Wow. So the entire two will page. You, will you read that to us so that just so that we have your wisdom on that? Yeah. So I'll go through uh, uh, how we put this together. Okay. Qualities of a victim with mentality. Number one, they stop working and having too much time on their hands to think about problems. Number two, they, uh, they become negative and start finding reasons to blame why there's a problem. Uh, number three, they justify why they're a victim. They say things like life isn't all about money. Yet all they argue about is money. The business has gotten us away from spending quality time with my family. I'm working too hard. I need to spend more time in church. Number four, they spread rumors and negativity. Number five, they recruit other victims to help justify their reasoning for being a victim. Number six, they, uh, uh, they uh, uh, spread the uh, negativity to others that spread and rumors is the same. Number seven, this becomes a never-ending issue for them to deal with for the rest of their lives. The next thing they do is they will find someone else later on in life to blame again and again and again. And I wrote on the bottom what to do with this. This is what I've done the last 20 years. Uh, I meet with them and their uh, partner, their husband and wife, immediately in a private setting. Ask them what's the reason why they got in the, you know, why they started doing a business or why they're doing what, what are their dreams? Like going back to it. Give me why you, uh, what your dreams are. Ask them if those things still matter to them. Find out what the challenges may be and help them clear it up. Ask them if they would like things to change. If they say yes, they get direction. If no, I don't give them anything. I just give them distance and I give them a break or fire them or say, this is just not for us. Explain to them what, what, why this happens and challenge their attitude and mindset to change. Recommend them a book, a CD, or a seminar to attend. Make an effort to show genuine care about them and their family. This is a must. It can be an act. Hold them accountable to what they'll be working on to finish a book, to smile more often, to be positive, to encourage, whatever it may be. Number 10, if they once in a while fall into that, that bad habit again, give them second and third chance. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Pete Carroll, who's exactly. third chance in the book. It says... <laughs> Second and third chance if they're truly making an effort to change. And then last but not least, if things get worse, take a break and move to another person. So, I mean, that's in the book here. You know, this happens in every single thing. And I've had victims around my life for a long time. And they're, they're by far, in my opinion, the greatest recruiters ever. Uh, they're better at recruiting yeah. than uh, uh, heroes. Yeah. They're better at recruiting people than, uh, you know, positive people. It's very easy. The message is so but you don't understand what he did to me and what she did to me and yeah, how they treated me. Yeah. And did you see this? And so it's tough to go through it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the victim thing. I just thought it was pretty interesting that you have that. Uh, yeah. It, well, I think, you know, it just shows you that people who, who ha have succeeded in life went through a season where they tried to figure out how to get victim mentality out. out. You did that and wrote about it a decade ago. I, I will say one last thing about victims that you have to be really careful of. If you're around somebody who defaults as a victim, they, they are going to make you the oppressor at some point. They, they need somebody to hurt them. And so even if you didn't hurt them, they're going to figure out a way. They're going to be powerful. easily offended or something. You're going to be the oppressor. And so when I see victims, I say, wait a second, it's only a matter of time before this person positions me as the person who hurt them. And, and isn't that amazing that the victim now who falsely accuses somebody of hurting them actually plays the villain? And it's, you know, it's a scary thing. And I just won't go anywhere near it. I've been around it. I'm in the <coughs> world and I see it regularly. And the hardest thing to do is just walk away 
because deep down yep. inside, you know, typically great leaders like Pete Carroll, you know, you want to give these guys a fighting chance, but uh, uh, you can make miracles happen sometimes. A person's got to want to change. So, okay. So yep. we have talked about the four Ps, product, people, yep. process, positioning. When you're talking positioning, uh, Don, are you talking positioning almost like the blue ocean strategy positioning, or do you have a different no. uh, way of looking at positioning? Well, Blue Ocean, is a, that's a great book and a great thought. Mine is, my positioning, when I think about positioning, I literally think about the words that you use to position yourself in the market. And uh, there's a formula that I use to go through that. So building a story brand, probably the reason I'm on your, your podcast, uh, and we could probably talk for, for two weeks straight, Patrick, but the reason I'm here is to talk about positioning and what that looks like. Uh, we help people clarify their message, and we do that using the elements of story, the ancient story structure that existed before Aristotle, but Aristotle was the first to write about it in a book called Poetics. And uh, so it's 2,500 years old. I mean, some adaptation of this story structure. The, the reason I like story in order to captivate an audience is because the average human brain spends about 30% of its time daydreaming, 30% of its time. That's actually a survival mechanism. It's your brain saying, there's nothing that I'm encountering right now that can help me survive. So we're gonna take a break and I'll check back in with reality later when I think my, my brain needs to help me survive. It, except when you're watching a movie. If you're watching a movie or reading a book or watching a television series, your brain will not daydream. It will actually pay attention for 90 minutes, two hours, a whole weekend. It is the only tool on the planet that can get somebody to pay attention. It's fascinating. So it's worth studying, I think, story and how it works because every little plot point that we study actually gives us a fascinating business paradigm shift that we can use to make more money in our company. So let me go through the formula for you and just give you a, a, a flyover version of, of what it is. Uh, in every story, first of all, stories are very formulaic and a lot of people don't know that but uh, there are basically about 35 plot points that happen in a story. There are only seven stories that ever get told in the theater. If you know what those stories are, you know where the movie's going. Uh, my wife hates going to the movies with me because I elbow her and say, that guy dies in 31 minutes. <laughs> he normally does. Uh, they're, just, they're just formulaic. The beautiful thing is, what that means is over the 2,500 years, story specialists have figured out how to captivate an audience's attention. So one of the hardest things for us to do as small business owners is get people's attention and keep it. So let's look at how a story works and see how it can help us. The very first thing that happens in a story, I'm gonna go through seven uh, critical plot points that happen in every single movie that you'll go see. Uh, the first is a character. You have a character who shows up on screen. And what you've got to do as a screenwriter is you've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to figure out what that character wants because that defines the story. The character has to want to disarm the bomb. The character has to want to win the championship. The character has to want to marry the girl. It has to be really specific. So there are two mistakes that amateur screenwriters make, and they're the same mistakes that business leaders make. The first is they are too vague in defining what it is that their customer wants. So if, if um, Patrick, if I said, hey, let's skip the rest of this interview. There's a movie down the street. It's about a guy looking for fulfillment. Is that interesting to you at all? Any Not temptation? at all. Not no. at all. Okay, let me tempt you a little bit better. Patrick, let's skip this interview. There's a movie down the street. Liam, another of Liam Neeson's daughters has been kidnapped. 
Is that more tempting or less more tempting? tempting. More tempting. <laughs> well, the reason is it's clear. And so if, if we are elusive or vague, we can't captivate somebody's attention. And here's what I mean by that. You know, I study websites for a living. If I go to your website and you have something like um, uh, trust is the commodity we exchange, you're not going to sell anything because it's so vague. It's, it, you know, it doesn't say what you offer. It doesn't tell me what problem you solve. We've got to know. So it can't be vague or elusive. The other problem is we will define too many things that the customer wants. We want to put all 27 of our revenue streams up on the, the main page. But if I took you to a movie, if we went to a movie and Jason Bourne wanted to know who he really was, he wanted to lose 30 pounds, he wanted to run a marathon, he wanted to marry the girl, he's thinking about adopting a cat. I've put too many plot points in that movie and I'm going to lose the audience. Uh, it's just not going to work. So we have to define something the customer wants. The next thing we have to do is our hero in the story has to have a problem. There has to be something that is challenging them. In fact, a story without a problem can't hook the audience. You know, if I said uh, a buddy of mine wanted to play or was in LA and he got a call from some friends and they said, come down to the beach, we're playing volleyball. And he walked down to the beach and they were all his best friends. They started playing volleyball and the game ended in a tie. And then one of them said, I'm hungry. And so there's some tacos across the street. And the tacos happen to be on sale. How long can I go into this story without boring you? What's going to happen is very quickly, if we don't have a problem, the audience is going to begin to daydream. And, and that's what's happening with most of us in our businesses. Here's the business paradigm shift there. If you're not talking about your customers' problems, you are not selling anything and your business is not going to grow. The only reason your customer is going to your website or calling your sales rep back or walking into your retail establishment is because they are trying to solve a problem. When you make it very clear what problem you solve, you attract customers. In fact, I say to salespeople all the time, you're not actually trying to sell anything. What you're trying to do is you're trying to connect this product to a problem that your customer has. And when the synapses fire, and they see this product as the resolution to the problem, that is when they are going to buy it. So you've got to figure out what that problem is. You've got to talk about it. You've got to say this is a painful problem and nobody should have to deal with this. Therefore, you should buy this product. And when you do that, you're actually going to sell a lot more product. So we've got to have the problem next. The third element is the guide. Guide, G-U-I-D-E. When we represent our business or our product, we want you to play the guide in the story. Don't play the hero. You play the hero in your personal life. But when you're representing a brand or you're selling a product, you play the guide. And what does the guide do? The guide helps the hero win the day. So if you're not listening to anything else on this podcast, hear me say this. Never play the hero in the story. Always play the guide when it comes to representing your brand. What does that mean? Well, when you play the hero in the story, first of all, if, if, I, if I say, if you say, Don, tell me about your business, I say, well, you know, we're trying to make 15 million this year and we're trying to increase our great places to work metric and we want to have our fourth quarter revenue be double what it was last year. What you hear me saying is that I'm a hero in a story. Well, if I'm a hero in a story and you're a hero in a story, we're in separate stories. So the second we play the hero in the story, we remove ourselves from our customer's story. That, that's so powerful what you just said. Can you say that one more yeah. time? That was so powerful. I hope, I, you, I'm not, I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to make sure they no, no, cut no, what you just said right there. 
When you play the hero in the story, you remove yourself from your customer's story. Your customer is walking to the room saying, I need a guide to help me solve a problem and win the day. And when they recognize that you're the hero, they go, okay, well, you're a hero and I'm a hero. Uh, nice to meet you. Would you move out of the way? I'm looking for a guide who can help me. Can I give you some really powerful examples? Please. Um, Donald Trump runs for president. He's got zero shot of winning that election. Uh, Hillary Clinton is the front runner. She could stay home and still win the election. What was her tagline? Her tagline was, I'm with her. She's the hero in the story. So she couldn't drive enough voters to the polls. She couldn't get them in passion. And here's why. Because they sat there and went, okay, well, if she's the hero in the story, what do I get? I've got all these problems as an American. And she's saying, hey, help me with my problem. My problem is I want to be president. Right? And she loses. She, you know, Donald Trump didn't win that election. She lost it. When I went in to help Jeb Bush, Jeb, the, Jeb's team called and said, can you come in? He was at 3% in the polls, Patrick. He had $130 million in the Right to Rise Super PAC. Day one. And yeah, he had $130 million, $12 million in his campaign fund. What was his, his slogan? His slogan was, Jeb can fix it. Two mistakes. Jeb's the hero of the story. And what he's going to fix is it. Now, is it specific enough to agitate a pain point that makes you want to solve it? Patrick, if I invited you to a movie and said, hey, it's a movie about a guy who wants to fix it. What's your question? <laughs> What's it? <laughs> so Jeb's going around going, I can fix it. You know what? What's it? Right? If he would have around and said, you know, I can fix the tax code so that Wall Street is taxed at the same level as Main Street and capital flows into small businesses in this country, because I know you're hurting and it's unfair that you would ever pay 39% when yeah. Wall Street pays 4%. He's going to get elected president. You have to be specific and you have to play the guide in the story, not the hero. So that's paradigm shift number three. Paradigm shift number four is you need to give your customers a plan, baby steps they can take. They, you, at this point, they're sold. They love you. Uh, they just need baby steps that they can take in order to do business with you. So you're going to say, if you're a financial advisor, you're going to say, I'd love to get together and assess your dreams and goals. And then I'm going to give you a free custom strategy on things I think you can do to make that happen. And the third thing, if you want, I'll hold your hand and we'll help you execute the strategy so you can retire maybe even earlier than you thought. That's a much better sales pitch than I'd love to be your financial advisor. Meet me next Thursday and bring your checkbook. That's right. right? Baby steps. So give them baby steps. That's step four. Step five is call the customer to action. The guide has to step into the hero's life and said, look, you're going to have to fight the bad guy or you're not going to get the girl. Bottom line, Luke Skywalker, you're going to have to find this, find this X-Wing fighter through the trench in the Death Star and blow that thing up. Uh, Daniel, Mr. Miyagi says, you're going to have to go to the karate tournament and beat up the bully. They're, they're forced to take action. They're challenged to take action because human beings don't want to take action on their own. And a lot of us are not doing great business because we have not said firmly to our customer, I want you to buy my product. It will solve your problem. When we say things, I go to my customers' websites all the time. They say things like learn more or get started. That's passive language. Buy now, schedule an appointment. That's direct language. We use passive language when, when, when we do two things. 
We use, we use passive language when we do not believe in our product or service or believe that it can help change somebody's lives. So passive language makes them sense that we actually can't help them. And we use passive language when we don't want to bother them or, or we don't want to challenge them. We just have to get used to challenging people to say, look, I'm tired of watching you deal with this problem. You don't have to deal with this problem. I want you to buy my product and overcome this. You know, it, 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 think about the terms learn more or get started as passive language. If, 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 if you were at a cocktail party back when you were single and you went up to a lady and you said, hey, you know, nice, you're nice looking. Would you like to learn more? They're, they're going to be completely creeped out. So are you saying you, you, are, you are more you the kind of guy that says buy now? <laughs> yeah, well, you, what you want to say is I'd like to take you out on a date. The point is you want to give your customer something very clear that they can accept or reject. What this means is a lot of times you're going to get rejected, but you're also going to get accepted more than yes. you ever were before because you Brilliant. actually made it clear. And then the, the, the sixth and the seventh are, you know, after you challenge them to take action, we have to give them a vision of a climactic scene that could happen in their lives. And so, you know, in, um, in Star Wars, the climactic scene is the Death Star is destroyed, Luke Skywalker saves the day, and all the, re the problems are resolved in one shot. Uh, that's what the customer is actually looking for. So give the customer a vision of the life that they can have if they buy your product. And then likewise, we have to have stakes for failure. You give them a vision for what their life will look like if they do not buy their pro your product. So all this sounds really complicated, but let me just give you a real life scenario. Let's say you're at a cocktail party, Patrick, and you meet two people who have the exact same job, do the exact same thing, run the exact same kind of company, charge the exact same price, and deliver the exact same quality. You go up to one of them and you say, hey, you know, nice to meet you. What do you do? And they say, well, I'm an at-home chef. And you say, okay, well, uh, where'd you learn to cook? Or what are your favorite restaurants in town? Have you ever cooked for anybody famous, anybody I'd know? You're going to start making conversation. They did not invite you into a story. They just told you what they do. So you go to the second person. They do the exact same thing. You say, hey, well, what do you do for a living? And they say, well, you know how most families don't eat together anymore? And when they do, they don't eat healthy. I'm an at-home chef. I come into your house. I cook you a great meal so that your family can spend a beautiful bit of time together, bond with each other, and not feel guilty about the food they ate. You're not, you don't have any questions about where they went to school. You're saying, are you available tomorrow to come to my house and let me pay you? Why? What'd they do? They, they position themselves as the guide in the story, helping the hero went, have a climactic scene of sitting with their family. They identified a problem that we're not eating together anymore. And when we do, we don't eat healthy. They identified a failure that you're, you're it, by inference, you're going to keep eating unhealthy and not spending any time with your family if you don't hire me, right? They could have ended it by saying, it's actually an easy process to hire me. I just come over. We assess what your family looks like. I make a custom meal plan. And then if you want, I'll show up once a week to cook dinner for you guys, and there'll be enough leftovers for a few meals in the rest of the week. I've got time Thursday if you want me to swing by. You throw some baby steps in there, you're going to close big the difference. deal every time. Every That's time. a big, big difference. And, Very and big notice difference. all seven of those points took me 30 seconds. It's not hard. Yeah, it, it took you 30 seconds, but everything I'm noticing, and I'm hoping the viewers seeing this as well, there is a system to the madness. You talked about... Yes you know, the product, people, process, positioning. So that's that part. 
the four characters in every book, which is the, the victim, the villain, the hero, the guide, G-U-I-D-E, guide. The seven steps that you talked about, a character has a problem, meets a guy who has a plan, calls them into action that helps them avoid failure and then sells a vision of what life could look like, right? What we right. can potentially do. These are things that are very transferable to another person. By the way, uh, just a question on a, on a side note here. You said every story has 34 different points or did you say 35 different points? Uh, well, there's between 33 and 36, depending on the, the story that we're talking about. Got it. But almost all movies use those. Let me ask you, are you familiar with Jim Scott Bell or uh, James Scott Bell? James Scott Bell, who wrote yes. uh, On Writing Well. And yes, yes I am. Yeah. You are familiar with him? Yes. Okay. Him and I sat down. Yes. He's, a, he's a very good friend of uh, mine, old friend of mine, Tom Ellsworth. And you may even know Tom Ellsworth. Tom Ellsworth sold uh, one of his uh, digital publishing companies to a, a company that Michael Hyde used to be a part of years ago. Yeah, and I know, I know your name. Yeah, I know the name. Actually, he's heavily James involved Scott in church Bell, as well, by the way. Yeah, James Scott Bell wrote a book on story structure. Yes. He's, he's a great, and, and William Zinser wrote on writing well, so forgive me. But yes, I, I, I'm familiar with James Scott Bell and studied his early work back when I was writing books myself. And he was, he was unbelievable. Talk about a guide. For young writers, genius. he's an unbelievable guy. The guy's he's a genius. genius. Do you have any other person that you know as a story specialist, as a consultant that people can hire? Is there a name you have yourself? Well, be- sadly, my favorite is actually, he passed away. His name is Blake Snyder, and he wrote a book called uh, uh, Save the Cat. And he goes through those seven story structures. One of my favorite books of all time is by a guy named Christopher Booker, who wrote a book called The Seven Basic Plots. It's a 600-page book. And then, but if you want to apply this directly to marketing, my book, Building a Story Brand, will help you clarify your message and, and come up with a marketing message similar to my chef story. You'll be able to do that very quickly. We're going we're gonna to drive uh, the audience to uh, both your books, uh, Building a Story Brand, that came out in 2017. It's got a few thousand reviews on Amazon, and it's still selling. And also the one that was just released earlier this year, Marketing Made Simple, a step-by-step story brand guide for any business. We'll put the link below. The other one as well for the audience to be able to pick up. Look, a little bit for, uh, you know, just for fun here, when you're looking at both campaigns today between uh, Biden as well as uh, Trump, which of those two campaigns are you seeing doing a better job telling their story and, you know, getting their message out there to the audience? You know, I don't think either campaign is actually doing a great job. Uh, Trump is not doing, and again, I'm, I'm not actually a fan, Patrick, of Republicans or Democrats. I think they spend too much time fighting with each other and not enough time fighting for us. And I think it's a massive problem that these two parties are, are deteriorating our country. <clears throat> they need, they've got to work together and come up with some practical solutions. But for, from a story structure and campaign perspective, uh, I don't think Trump is doing as good of a job as he did in 2016. Uh, but he naturally thinks in narrative. He naturally thinks villains, fear, climactic scene of making America great again. They're coming to get you in the suburbs. Uh, Those are all, that's the stuff you would use to write a screenplay. Biden uh, doesn't tend to do that. He he doesn't, there's no vision that he has for the future of the country. He's just not Trump. Now, how you position yourself as a guide, one of the ways you do that is extremely strong empathy. You care about the voter. Biden does a very, very good job with that. You know, this is going to be a close race, uh, but I, I just don't see Biden being able to drive 
the numbers to the polls that he would, if he had a clear vision for the country, if he foreshadowed a climactic scene, he would be he would be driving a lot more uh, people to the polls, and he's not doing that. You know, I I think if you're a Democrat, even though all the polls have Biden up by ten points, I would still be very very concerned. So you said you're not a Repu- you know, you're not a fan of Republicans or Democrats. Do you see yourself as a libertarian? Is is that kind of where you are? No. Or okay. No, I, I uh, you know, because I do know you have aspirations politically. I think you yeah. said to Lewis House four years ago that one day you want to run for office. And quite frankly, you look presidential. You sound like Troy Aikman. You put the voice together good. So you you, you got we'll, you got, we'll see. I, I've got a, I'm, I, my first goal is to get my company to 100 million, Patrick. And if I get it to 100 million, I'm still not going to buy a boat. I'm going to I'm going to put it into a political campaign. I'll probably run for Senate. Uh, as an independent, and I'll run against both parties. I'll say Got it's it. me against them, and we're actually going to go to D.C. and get things done. That's not for 10 years. I have plenty of stuff to do before then. Well, that's good to know, but let's let's go back to that because if you're talking independent, I'm a registered independent myself. I voted Clinton. I voted on the right. I'm a registered independent for the last nine years. I don't know, nine years, yeah. eight years. It's been a while, and I moved to Texas from California. I was in California for 24 years, my, minus the three years I was in the Army at the 101st Airborne Division, but Thank libertarian independent at any time. Libertarian and independent, okay? The last time there was a independent candidate that really made some noise was probably Ross Perot, right? It was somebody that was yeah. got to 21%, you know, 19%, some say 21%. But he got up to that 19, 20 percentile, and he was making some momentum, right? Today, you have libertarian message with Joe Jorgensen. I don't know if you've seen her story or not. And yes, you kind of know yeah, the she's, libertarian. Yeah, she's really fantastic. And she's trying to broaden the base of the Libertarian Party. Sadly, she can't get any press time. And I would say their campaign needs some narrative work as well. But, you know, the, the, the reality is to run as an independent, you've got to get 50,000 signatures in each state to get on the ballot. It's a big challenge to do it. Um, and uh, and I, I think it would cost $50 million just to get on the ballot. That's almost before you even spend advertising money. But, but I think the reality is the country is coming to a place here in eight or 10 years where they're just going to be so incredibly tired of this. And if somebody can come out and articulate how much money it's costing you to have such an inefficient government, I think we'll start caring more about the waste that's happening in our country plus the wasted opportunity to actually lead the world in education, lead the world in healthcare, lead the world, continue to lead the world in our GDP. Because you, you and I know that China is going to take over in, in, the largest, in terms of the largest GDP pro- probably in 2025. And that's not a message we need to get used to. I don't care if they have billions of people and we only have 330 million. We want to lead the world to be the moral center of the world. So I think the, the, the reality is... Uh, Nobody's been able to articulate that message in a, in a way that unites people. And I think if God gives me the chance to build a big enough company and, and put some effort into that, I'll, I'll be able to do that in 10 or 12 years. So we have, we have a big group of people that want us to put Joe Jorgensen on our channel because I constantly call out, call out the Libertarian Party for not marketing themselves very well. Great messaging, yeah. but they don't know how to market themselves very well. No. Uh, what tip would you give both to the Independent Party as well as the, the Libertarian Party, to get their story out there. What, what should be their move? Even if you go on their website, it's a, and I, I'll be the bad guy, you'll be the nice guy. 
it's a very boring messaging that you're listening with a great message, but boring the way it's being sold. What do you yeah. think they can do to get their message to uh, resonate a little bit more with the younger audience and also some folks that are out there that want to get behind it where it's not a 1% or half a percent or 2%. It actually can create getting some momentum to the double digits. And I'm specifically talking libertarians. Well, I think, you know, one of the problems that I have with the Libertarian Party is I think they take things too far. I don't think the government is evil. I think it can actually be an institution that changes and, and drives progress. I do agree with them that our government right now is too big. It's too inefficient. It is so hard to fire somebody in government, which makes a business impossible to run. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think there's some good things about the Libertarian Party. Let me give you the biggest mistake that independent candidates make. They see themselves as a third party. The reality is human beings, they think in binary. They only think one or the other. So they think Republican or Democrat. So if you're running as an independent, you need to run against one thing, and that is extremism in the Republicans and the Democrats. You've got to put the Republicans and Democrats, you have to make them one so that you are the binary opposite of the one. So political parties basically operate in many ways like cartels. They are run by extremists because extremists vote in primaries, extremists give money. The overwhelming majority of Americans do not have a sensible choice because the way the primary system runs. So let's run against one thing, and that is political parties. George Washington's farewell address, the, the first president of the United States, his farewell address warned us of political parties. He said they operate like lobbyists. They care more about their own power than they do about the people. Beware and be careful. And we did not heed his, his advice. I think the president should always be independent and should broker between the two parties and in ways punish people for not getting into the room and working together on solutions to America's problems. You know, in the days of Richard Nixon, the average middle-class family made $10,000 more than they do today, Patrick. That is adjusted for inflation. They have taken a $10,000 pay cut. Add to that, they're leaving college with college debt, so they cannot buy a house and build equity in their house. That is costing them future wealth. By the time they can build a house, they're about five years into the payments before their medical bills start mounting up. And, and then they're punished in the tax code because Wall Street is paying 11%, effectively 4%, because they only, get, they only pay a tax on what they spend. And everybody watching this video who, has an, who operates a business is paying 37 to 39%. So you know, we do that in the name of investing in capital. Why invest in Wall Street capital? NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange has Chinese companies, Saudi companies. Uh, all of our economic competitors are represented on... We're giving tax credits to invest in Chinese companies, the profits of, of which build Chinese tanks. And we are not giving tax credit to the heart of America, Main Street, the people who are watching this. That is wrong. And the reason it's happening is because Democrats and Republicans both have been bought by those lobbyists, and they will talk all day about the culture wars, and they will do nothing to get the middle-class family its $10,000 back. It's time for a real change. Sounded like a campaign right there, by the way. It sounded I'm like- I'm not our, running. Our, 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 I am uh, not running. <laughs> uh, by the way, six years from now, we're going to play this soundbite and it's going to be Senator Miller, Don <laughs> Miller. 
Uh, but by the way, George Washington, wasn't George Washington an independent himself? I thought he was an independent. Uh, I believe he was, yeah. I mean, yeah. he definitely danced with some of the parties, but, uh, but he, he didn't like where he saw things going. He was one of a kind. Well, Don, this has been a uh, pleasure having you on, folks. Again, we're going to put the links below to uh, our friend here, Don Miller's books. Go order both of them, not just one of them. And uh, we'll put the links as well to your Instagram and Twitter account. Go send them some love as well for this uh, incredible time we spend with you. So, Don, thanks again for coming on and being a guest on Valuetainment. What an honor. One of the best conversations, if not the best, I've had all year. Thank you so much. If you're an entrepreneur, CEO, founder, or even an executive, this video is a great video for you. You may want to watch it again. If you want to go a little bit deeper about storytelling, I did a video about six months ago, maybe a year ago, titled How to Master the Art of Storytelling. If you've not watched that video, click over here. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.